at the end of a worship service, the pastor invited people to come forward if they wanted someone to to pray for them. And sure enough, a visitor, a big, burly-looking man, walked up front. When the pastor asked about his prayer request, the guy answered, Preacher, I need you to pray for my hearing. So the pastor placed his hands over the man's ears and began to fervently pray for restored hearing. When he finished praying, he looked the man squarely in the eyes and shouted above the music and above the singing, How's your hearing now? To which the man loudly replied, I don't know yet, preacher. It's not till Wednesday at the courthouse. So the pastor made an assumption, and his prayer missed the mark. We have made it to Daniel chapter 9. And when Daniel chapter 9 is mentioned, any student of Bible prophecy is going to perk up. Because the prophecy in this chapter is foundational. Foundational to all other end times prophecy. It's a great chapter of prophecy. But what is often overlooked in this chapter is that two-thirds of it is a prayer. The prophecy we will look at this morning comes on the heels of a prayer. A prayer without any assumptions... A prayer that truly hits the mark. So if you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 9. And we will begin with verse 1. Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. In the first year of Darius... The son of, of, excuse me, of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord 
to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. Namely, 70 years. The year is 538 B.C. Daniel has outlived the Babylonian Empire. He's more than 80 years old. He's pulled out of retirement. And now he serves Darius the Mede, who was appointed by the Persian Emperor Cyrus over Babylon. It's the first year of Darius. And here we find Daniel studying Scripture. Now, Daniel didn't have a copy of the Bible like you and I might have today. Instead, he had access to various scrolls of the Old Testament that the Jewish exiles had likely carried with them into Babylon. And some of these scrolls contained the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. For some 40 years, Jeremiah had warned God's people of their coming demise. A warning they disregarded. As a young boy, Daniel may have heard Jeremiah speak in the temple, calling the Jews to repent from their idolatry and false worship. And now, as a very old man, Daniel is studying his writings. And then, I believe, he comes to these words that jump off the page. In Jeremiah 29, beginning with verse 10, I think... Daniel reads this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and, and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. God revealed to Jeremiah that the Jews would be taken to Babylon, exiled for 70 years, 70 years, and then be returned to their land. Daniel is reading this. And he starts to do the math. We know Daniel and others were taken captive in 605 B.C. That was the first wave to Babylon. It's now 538 B.C. And Daniel realizes... The 70 years is almost up. It's really close. And God's people will be allowed to return to their homeland. Daniel believed God's word. He knew changes were coming for his people. And so what did he do? He did the only thing he could do. He did what Jeremiah said he should do. He went to God about it. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. When Daniel read in the book of Jeremiah that God was going to keep his people in captivity for 70 years and then send them home, he believed it. Daniel knew what God was going to do. Right? Daniel knew what God was going to do, and in response, he was moved to prayer. Let's think about that for a moment. <clears throat> God said what he was going to do. Did he not? Daniel knew what God was going to do. And yet, he prayed about it. Why should he pray about it? I mean, if God said 
He is going to do it. Then what is there for us to do? Well, Daniel prayed about it because God was going to do what He was going to do, but He was going to do it through the prayer of His people. You see, for God, prayer is a way He has chosen. He has chosen to include us and involve us in His plan. I like like how David Jeremiah, that's another Jeremiah, David Jeremiah puts it. He says, God knows His plan. Smart guy. God knows His plan, and even when He reveals His plan to us, He expects us to pray over that plan. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything, people stop right there, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us in whatever we ask, I'm going to interject, according to His will, we know we have the requests which we have asked from Him. David Jeremiah continues, Sometimes... I get the impression that I have misunderstood the meaning of prayer. This is coming from David Jeremiah. Prayer is not to get God to change His will. If we really believe the will of God is perfect then why would we want to change it? Good question. Our prayers really ought to be prompted out of our deep understanding of what the will of God is. There are a lot of folks who go to prayer not to ascertain the will of God, but to ask Him to do what they want. Prayer is not getting God to adjust His program to what we want. It is adjusting our lives to the revealed will of God. When we pray, it isn't God who changes, it is us. If I may clarify this, Yes, prayer can change things. Yes, it may change our circumstances. 
But ideally, ultimately, it is to change our perspective from our will to his. Daniel knew God's will. He believed it and he responded to it through prayer. Just as Jeremiah said God's people ought to do. And beginning with verse 4, here it is. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. It is in this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Let me just stop right there real quick. Just to remind you, sin is against God. All sin is against God. Let me continue. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He has set before us through His servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole earth there is, has been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet, we have not sought 
the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel comes to God in brokenness and in humility. He makes confession. He makes confession. And if you noticed, several times Daniel uses the pronouns we, us, our. He he includes himself in this confession. God, we were wrong. We were wrong and we deserved every bit of these 70 years of exile. You warned us beforehand they were coming. You sent your messengers like Jeremiah who told us to change our wicked ways or judgment was coming our way. There were no secrets about this. No secrets. You said it would come to pass, and yet we passed on you. We passed you over and did what we wanted to do anyway. We committed iniquity, which means to twist. It means to twist. God, we twisted your word to suit ourselves. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. You were faithful to us, O God, but we were not faithful to you. Instead, we disrespected you and departed from your word. Now look at that last verse. Daniel seems to be saying, That although God's people had gone through calamity, calamity they had brought upon themselves, they still remained unchanged. Then, beginning with verse 15, Daniel's prayer takes a turn. We read, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day we have sinned, we have been wicked. 
O Lord, in accordance with all Your righteous acts, let now Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and Your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take Action for your own sake, O oh my God. Do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel <clears throat> pleads for mercy. Daniel pleads for mercy, the same kind of mercy God extended to His people who were once in Egypt. This plea is not made because of the people's righteousness, for they had none. Instead, it was based on the character of God. He is merciful. And He is compassionate. Daniel thought about God's character. But he also thought about God's name. The Jews were God's chosen people. And Jerusalem was the place of His holy temple. And in so many words, Daniel was saying, God, everybody is talking about us as your people. They are saying that you have forgotten us. God, for the sake of your word, for the sake of your name, Restore us to the place we once knew. Daniel is in deep prayer. And before he can say amen, he gets an answer. Let's continue beginning with verse 20. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel 
and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. The angel Gabriel, apparently sent by God at high speed, shows up again with an answer to prayer. But it's not, it's not about the 70-year plan mentioned by Jeremiah. It's about a much greater plan. It's about the 70 times 7 year plan. A plan that is laid out by Gabriel, beginning with verse 24. Gabriel says, <clears throat> 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. This passage starts with the words, 70 weeks. But don't let the word weeks mislead you. In Hebrew, it is Shabuah, which means a period of seven. A period of seven. Just like we use the word dozen to mean the number twelve, The word weeks refers to the number seven. You following me? 
So 70 weeks literally means 70 sevens. 70 sevens. And in context, it's 70 sevens of years. 70 sevens of years. And if you do the math, I know we got some math wizards in here. If you do the math, that adds up to 490 years. 490 years have been decreed. Decreed according to the angel Gabriel for your people. Daniel's people. This is about the Jews and the holy city of Jerusalem. This is very important, so please don't miss this. God has set, He has decreed 490 years specifically for the Jews. For a purpose. For a purpose. And here it is. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sin. To make atonement for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy place. Do you see that up there? That's the purpose. Human rebellion ends. And atonement is made to make things right with God. God's plan is to bring everlasting righteousness. Right with God and right with each other forever and forever. Not only that, all of God's promises and all of God's visions about the future will be completely fulfilled. No more need for prophecy. And lastly, the most holy place, the temple in Jerusalem, will be anointed by the Lord's presence. That's the summary of God's plan for Daniel's people, the Jews. And we know it's a future plan because there isn't everlasting righteousness in Israel. 
The Jews have not turned to Jesus for the atonement of sin. And there is no temple in Jerusalem to anoint. So taken as a whole, this speaks of Israel's eventual repentance by turning to Jesus as their Messiah and the establishment of the Lord's earthly kingdom at His second coming where eventually everything is fulfilled and finally made right. You track it. That's the eventual outcome after these 490 years have run their course. And fortunately for us, this is so sweet, we are given a starting point. Look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, capital P, Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, And 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Here, Gabriel reveals two out of the three segments of this 490-year period. Two out of three segments, he reveals. The first segment is seven weeks. Do you see that up there? Seven weeks. Or we could say seven sevens. Remember, weeks is a, is a number, a, a word for seven. We could say seven sevens, which equates to 49 years. And it begins with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Not the temple, but the city with its buildings and its streets, its walls and its gates. This decree, recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, was made during the month of Nisan. That's sometime during March or April in 445 B.C when King Artaxerxes of Persia gave Nehemiah permission, safe passage, and the supplies 
to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city after it had been left desolate for decades. And if you read Nehemiah, you will also see that the rebuilding occurred during very troubling times. There were locals who resisted the rebuilding of the walls. So, we have from there a good starting point. You see that? 445 B.C. The second segment given by Gabriel is 62 weeks. Do you see that up there? 62 weeks or 62 sevens. Or... 434 years. It begins after the first segment. And it brings us forward to the time of the Lord's earthly ministry as the Messiah. So adding these first two segments together from the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem to the Lord's earthly ministry would be 69 sevens. 69 sevens or 483 years. Did I lose anybody? Thank you, Jesus. Okay. We started with 490 years, did we not? And 483 have come and gone. So that leaves us with only one week or seven years remaining. What happened to the remaining seven years? We are given a clue at the beginning of verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, after this second segment... The Messiah, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. After the Lord's earthly ministry, after the 62 weeks, we are told the Messiah will be cut off, executed, crucified, and it's that point stops. At that point, the seven years stop. Remember, this is about Daniel's people. The Jews. 
who rejected their Messiah. The Jews rejected their Messiah. And as a consequence, they were set aside for a season to usher in the church age. Jesus talked about this very thing with the Jewish religious leaders in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42 and 43. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. The seven years stopped for the Jews and in Acts, the church became front and center tasked with carrying out God's mission to reach a lost and dying world. That's the present purpose for the church. That's what we should be doing. Reaching out to a lost and dying world. But as we come to the last part of verse 26 and verse 27, we get a sneak peek into the future for the Jews. We are told, and the people of the prince, prince little p, little p, different prince, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, and he, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, Ooh, one week, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay. Follow me here. We are told the people, the people of the prince, not the prince, not yet, the 
people of the prince who is yet to come. Okay? Talking about the people. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the temple. In 70 A.D., in 70 A.D., the people, referring to the Romans, under the command of Titus, came in like a flood and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Not one stone was left upon another, just as Jesus had predicted some 40 years earlier. And as a result, the Jews were left homeless and scattered for centuries. The Jews had no nation or temple to call their own. After 70 AD, they had no nation or no temple to call their own. Then we are told in verse 27, and this is where it gets interesting. That he, he, still referring to this future prince with the little p, whose people were who? The Romans. So now we should consider a revived Roman Empire. He will make a covenant, a peace treaty, for one week or seven years. And in the middle of these seven years, this future prince will put a stop to the sacrifices and the offerings. Sacrifices and offerings which are only made where? In the temple. Now this seems very unrealistic because, as I already said, after 70 AD, there was no Jewish nation to make a treaty with And there was no temple to make sacrifices and offerings in. And to this day, there still is no temple in Jerusalem. So how can this prophecy be fulfilled without a Jewish nation or a temple? Both, which are featured prominently in the end times. You following me? Well, as you already know, God is true to His Word. 
and go figure. In 1948, Israel was rebirthed as a nation. That had never happened before. So now we got a nation. Yeah, we got a nation. And all the Jews lack is a temple. A temple has to re be rebuilt for these final events to happen, to include the abomination that will later occur in it. Let me tell you what I think happens. This prince to come is the Antichrist. He will come as a man of peace. A strong leader with all kinds of energy and great promises. And I believe it is he who will make a way through a treaty with the nation of Israel and her neighbors to construct a temple in Jerusalem. And with this seven-year treaty, it's here the calendar starts back up again for the Jews. Seven years we call the tribulation period. A time I would describe as hell on earth, which serves a purpose. That being to bring the lost more specifically, Daniel's people, the Jews, to repentance and salvation through their Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is the outcome of this 490 year period. After 490 years have run their course, Jesus returns and establishes His earthly kingdom once and for all. So what does this say to us? It says to me that this is a time we need to take seriously because of the days in which we live. No matter your views, we are responsible to act according to the Word of God, according to His expressed will, and to understand that God's plan is going to run its course exactly as He said it will. Like Daniel, God wants you and me to get on board with His 
plan and join him in the here and now in his work. And therefore, our prayer and our attitude should be not my will, O God, but yours be done. No matter what. And I mean it. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I admit it can be a little confusing. But Lord, I thank you for it. You're coming. That's your plan. That is your expressed will. You are coming to make things right once and for all. And Father, when you come, when Jesus comes, I hope and pray you find me doing exactly what you want me to do. Father, I pray that in my heart, in my, in my mind, in my body, your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. May you be honored and glorified. Help us, Father, to be the kind of people you want us to be in the here and now. Help us to get on board with your work. And that is to reach a lost and dying world who does not know you. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I was doing a little bit of a extracurricular study in this weekend. I was just kind of curious as to what's going on over in Israel when it comes to the temple. You know, they have no temple, right? They want a temple. There are some really good sites I think there's one called uh, templeinstitute.org. Another one, I believe, is uh, jewishvoice.org. As far as I can gather, they're ready. The furnishings are completed. The temple furnishings the utensils that they would use for offerings and sacrifices have been manufactured. The priestly apparel has been made. They're ready to go. They are itching. They are ready to go. I don't know how this is going to transpire. It would not surprise me. Just let you know, I watch... I watch what happens over in the Middle East. That's kind of where I focus. America's important. I live here. I get that. 
But I, I, I watch what's going on over there. Okay? It would not shock me that Israel forces the hand, which would create an upheaval amongst the Muslim neighbors. Because they got their own little temple. It's got a golden dome on it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of holy to them. And it's right there where, they, where the Jews want to build theirs. In the same neighborhood. That could cause a problem. I could see the Jews forcing the issue. Which would create all kinds of conflict. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Between Israel and her Arab neighbors. Man. And I can see this man of peace show up. Resolve the conflict. Come in on his white horse. That's how Revelation describes him. Coming in on his white horse. He looks like a good guy. Just to calm things down and, to, and just to find a win-win situation for everybody. The Muslims are happy. The Jews are happy. They get their temple. I guess they're ready. Everything's ready. They're just waiting for the green light to start building. And here's the wild thing. Church. Before that happens, I believe the church is gone. Raptured. Because the tribulation period, all kinds of views in this, I get this. Because the tribulation period is for Daniel's people, the Jews. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob is another name for Israel. Yes. I think the time is sooner than later when the Lord brings us home. Sooner than later. Are you ready? I'm chomping at the bit, quite frankly. I'm chomping at the bit. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, you know, I firmly, I'm just speaking from my own, my own understanding. Again, I, I pay attention to what happens over there. I firmly believe, I believe, I will see this in my lifetime. If I live a normal age, put it that way. But you know what? I could go home tomorrow. So could you. Are you ready? Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have no guarantees for tomorrow. Not a one. There are some of you who can testify to that fact. You have no guarantees for tomorrow. Are you ready? If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, give me, please, I plead with you, give me an opportunity to share Him with you. Give me that chance. 
Not, maybe not here, but later, I would love to talk with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Maybe you just need prayer. Whatever the case may be, just obey Him. Lord, Your will be done. Not mine. We have a will, don't we? We have a will. Lord, your will be done. Not mine. No matter what it is, no matter the cost, no matter the pain, Lord, your will be done. Not mine. And I mean it. Larry?